Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. Welcome to the show. A lot of people think it's a very good thing that the Western world is becoming increasingly secular. No matter where you happen to stand on this sometimes controversial question, and no matter whether you're a believer or a non-believer, it is intriguing to consider that there may be some key benefits that many of us are missing out on as organized religion fades in many parts of the world. My guest today is a scientist who has embarked upon a project that he calls religio prospecting. In other words, he's been looking at the scientific evidence that many ancient religious practices can confer all sorts of benefits, whether you're a believer or not. He points out correctly that many secular people practice mindfulness even if they're not Buddhists. And his question is, what is the next mindfulness? David DeSteno is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, where he directs the Social Emotions Group. I was reading his official bio the other day, and I liked these, uh, these, these sentences provide some nice color on, on what he studies. His work examines the mechanisms of the mind that shape vice and virtue, studying hypocrisy and compassion, pride and punishment, cheating and trust. His work continually reveals that human moral behavior is much more variable than most would predict. David is the author of a new book called How God Works, and he's also the host of a new podcast on PRX, also called How God Works. In this conversation, we cover his desire to study the benefits of religious practice in a scientific way, to neither treat religion like a superstition or to defend it as an institution, but instead to learn what practices work and why. We talk about the evidence behind such practices as sitting Shiva, gratitude, the Apache sunrise ceremony, and Japanese Shinto rituals around childbirth. That's coming up. First, uh, one quick item of business. If you are a regular listener to this show, you may have noticed that we've had a lot going on inside the 10% Happier app this fall, from meditation challenges to the brand new 20% Happier podcast. There has never been, I might argue, a better time to join our merry little band, our community of meditators in the app to make sure you have a chance to try it out for yourself. We're offering 10% Happier subscriptions at a 40% discount from now until December 1st. We don't do discounts of this size all the time. And of course, nothing is permanent. So get this deal before it ends by going to 10%.com slash 40. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash 40 for 40% off your subscription. We will get to David DeSteno right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today 
to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Professor Dave Desteno, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. We've been trying to do this for a while. Your new book, the subject is, is fascinating. I'd be interested to start with how you got to this, as I understand it, and not a particularly religious person. Yeah, that's true. Although in, in some ways it's kind of full circle for me. So when I was an undergraduate in college, I was trying to decide between being a religious studies major, kind of not, not to be a theological person, but kind of the history of religions or a psychologist. And what finally tipped me toward being a psychologist was that I could run experiments and I could get answers to things rather than sitting around and debating. Uh, I mean, there are problems with that too. But as I've spent time running a lab for the past 30 years, a lot of the things we focus on are, are how people find connection, what makes people virtuous, what leads them to be resilient and happy. I had this nagging sense of maybe what we're finding isn't so new. Because when we studied things like meditation and saw that it made people kinder, when we studied things like gratitude and saw how it made people more patient, more honest, more generous. When we found people just kind of moving in time with each other, with their bodies, made them feel more connected, we thought that was great. But every kind of ritual or spiritual practice you look to, they've been doing this for thousands of years. And so I, I say humbled because it's one thing if you know somebody gets to your idea first when you're a scientist. It's another if they've been doing it for thousands of years. And sure, they couldn't scan brains or they can't run randomized control trials, but in the messy thick of life, they've realized ways to put packaged elements together to help people deal with grief, to help people deal with stress, to help people find meaning. And so my argument really is, let's not treat religion like it's superstition. 
My goal is not to defend religion as an institution, but to look at what they have discovered that can make life better for people and to study it scientifically and, and see how we can use that. You know, we've been doing this with meditation for a while, but my question really is, okay, we know meditation helps. What's mm. the next mindfulness? It's gotta be out there if we're willing to look. And I don't wanna argue about whether or not God exists because there is no scientific test for the fingerprint of God. Even, even Richard Dawkins, who's one of the best known kind of atheists in the world, will say he can't prove for certain whether or not God exists. But if you look at the data, people who regularly engage with spiritual practices and faith services live longer, they're healthier, they're happier. And so to me, it's very rational to say, let's put theology aside, but let's look at these practices and see what they do. Your intuition, or maybe there's evidence here, is that faith itself, belief in the dogma is not required to extract those benefits. Some benefits it's required for, but I think many it's not. And I think that's the question that we as scientists have to look at. I mean, having belief can calm anxiety and do lots of things, but there are lots of ways that these practices kind of leverage mechanisms of our mind and body to help us in ways that can be separated from theological belief. And I think it's there that we have to look. And I think people realize that because, you know, people are leaving traditional religions at a good clip these days. And there's lots of good reasons for that. Institutional failures, cover-ups of abuse and financial scandal, gender discrimination. You just don't even agree with, with the beliefs. But of those people who are leaving and becoming nuns, and, and by nuns, I don't mean women who wear habits. I mean N-O-N-E-S, people who, who, who do not affiliate with any one type of, of religion. Many of them aren't becoming atheists. They are looking for other types of spirituality. You know, 20% who people who say they're nothing in particular still pray every day, and two-thirds still believe in some type of higher power. And I think what they're looking for are these tools that help them deal with the challenges of life once they leave the institutionalized faith that are causing them other problems. Are there folks in the atheist community, in the non-believing community, even maybe the humanist community that don't like what you're up to? We'll find out. <laughs> I, I read about this in the New York Times a while ago. I think once they get the sense that I'm not here to argue that that religion is all good, which I'm, I'm not, I think of it as these tools, these spiritual practice as kind of a technology of sorts. It can be used for good or for ill. I mean, it can motivate people to go to war. We've, we've seen that. I think once they think about it that way, then they're fully on board. I'm sure there will be some people who are very intensely religious, who will object to kind of my taking a scientific lens to some of their practices. But there are also, I have a friend who's a rabbi who, who tells me, you know, I want to know what science says about how some of these practices work because it helps me lead my flock. It helps me give better recommendations to people for what to do and, and, and how to adapt. It's interesting to hear because I've heard, you know, many different arguments coming from the religious side of the spectrum. Some people will hear you mm -hmm. saying, I believe you use the term religio prospecting, you yes, know, to go into religions and prospect, you know, find the nuggets uh, that are, are yeah. scientifically verifiable and extract them from their context. Some people really don't like that. They feel like it's cultural appropriation or it's somehow perverting the thing by taking it outside of its ethical sure. context. I believe, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. The Dalai Lama is pretty explicit about not wanting people to 
become a Buddhist per se, but they should be training in what he calls secular ethics and doing, uh, mm-hmm. embracing technologies like meditation, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And he, as you know, he actually funds a lot of that research. And, you know, my, my favorite saying of his is, is I heard him once say, you know, if science ever proves that reincarnation doesn't exist, then we'll have to give it up, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> and so, and so, but I, you know, your point is, is, is correct. And it's, it's not to engage in cultural appropriation. And I'm very sensitive to that. And my argument is, since I don't know, and, and I'm fully happy to say, I have no idea if God exists. You can see these practices as divinely inspired, or you can see them as practices that people have designed and created through an experimentation of sorts in, in you know, the pain and joys of life. And to me, it doesn't matter. Let's just look at them and see how they work. But your other point about appropriation is a trickier one. That is, if we're taking a practice that, you know, maybe is, is a Jewish or a Catholic practice, and from that, we are trying to take secular elements, what does that mean? And I think that's a trickier question. My goal is to always give reverence and respect to the origins of these traditions, but then to study how they work scientifically. And if we know how they work scientifically, it doesn't mean that we can't adapt them. So if we take elements of the way you breathe or chant, or if we take elements of the way Ash Wednesday or Yom Kippur reminds people that life's length is is a gift, it's not a guarantee, and we use that in other ways, I don't think that's kind of disrespecting the, the religion. If we take their ritual exactly as it is and then try and change the words and stuff or adopt it in a way that doesn't respect the faith, then yeah, I can see cultural appropriation there. But if we can see some wisdom in the strategies and tactics they use and we can prove they work scientifically, I don't see why we can't use them in a different context. What about the argument you sometimes hear from people uh, who are critics of what they call Mick mindfulness? Yeah. One of their arguments, and I don't want to pretend to to know it chapter and verse, but one of the complaints you sometimes hear is if you take something like mindfulness, which is one very important concept within a vast treasury of mm-hmm. insights into the human condition, if you take that out of its, in particular, out of its ethical context and place it in the mind of a C-suite executive at a company whose business practices are harmful, et cetera, et cetera. All you're doing is making better, more focused bad actors as opposed Mm to helping the world. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And when I refer to these as technologies or tools, that's exactly what I mean, because the reason they work is because you are using aspects of training the mind and leveraging the physiology of the body to accomplish a goal. If we're sitting in the sangha and we're meditating together and we're getting all the other elements and instruction, then that openness and greater attention we're feeling is going to focus us in the right way. We can certainly take that tool and use it in another way. And so that's the thing to remember. And that's why I say, yeah, religion can be used for good and bad. We've seen that throughout history. But there are also kind of elements to these rituals and practices that I think are robust. Let's talk about mindfulness. It's a good one. The purpose of meditation, right, wasn't so that you could perform better at work or or have a better memory. It was to reduce or is to reduce suffering in the world, both yours and, and other people's. And what we find when we study meditation is it makes people more 
compassionate. It makes people kinder. So there are a lot of labs that look at, you know, what does it do to your gray versus white matter? What does it do for your memory? But that wasn't its purpose. And so in experiments that we did, we actually showed not only that it makes people more compassionate to come to the aid of individuals who are in pain, but it even helps you stop lashing out at individuals who would normally provoke you. And we did that in a, in a completely secular way too. And so I think there are certain elements of these practices that push us toward the goals that religions have designed. Let's go through some of the practices that you've looked at and written about as part mm-hmm. of your religio prospecting, which is a I assume a neologism that I can I can give credit to you for. Yeah, you can. And just so people know where this comes from, because it is it is a mouthful. There's this term bioprospecting that the that pharmaceutical companies use when they go and look for cures, many of which were were traditional. And you know, many traditional cures turned out not to do anything, but some did. We've developed many cancer drugs from traditional cures and recommendations from indigenous cultures for medicinal plants. And so my argument in in religio prospecting is, well, why not look to kind of, you know, traditional spiritual practices, not just to biological substances. So that's that's where that term comes from. But sure, we can we can go through some of them. Let's start with the Jewish practice of sitting Shiva. Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the biggest challenges we face everybody at some point in life is is losing someone we love. You know, no matter who you are, you can't escape grief. And the question is how do different rituals help us deal with mourning? One thing that they all do in, in, including Shiva and then I'll get to Shiva in particular and why I think it's so beneficial is there's always a eulogizing element. And if you think about it, I mean, we all feel like that's normal, but it's kind of strange, actually. If I lost a job or lost an award or my significant other broke up with me, I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about why they were so great. We always do this when somebody passes. And there's wonderful work by a psychologist named George Bonanno, who shows that if we can consolidate positive memories of a deceased person, that's one major predictor of being resilient in the face of grief. And in fact, people who tend to have more anxiety and more depression are less able to do that. They're less able to to suggest and talk about positive memories of the person who's gone. But the real trick with grief is not to deny it, but to move through it in a timely fashion that's not too long and in not letting it get so intense that it is paralyzing. And if you look at Shiva, it packages together everything that science has kind of figured out in the past 20 years that helps. One big predictor of of resilience in the face of mourning is instrumental support. Now, what do I mean by that? It's not social support. It's not like how many friends you have on Twitter. It's who shows up when you need them to be there in person to support you. And Shiva, there's this idea of visiting the mourners. And it's, it's, it's a mitzvot, which means it is a sacred obligation. It's not something nice to do. You have to do it. You have to go there. You have to bring food. You have to support in any way you can. When you're there for the seven-day period, there are what are called minion prayers, where at least 10 people have to be together to say prayers. And so the mourners are never alone. But when they say prayers, people are saying them in unison, in synchrony, often swaying with a little bit with each other. 
One thing that synchronous movement does, that is kind of moving and swaying in time with each other, and we have experimental data to show this, is it not only makes people feel closer to one another, it makes them have more compassion for one another and more and be more willing to help each other out. People cover mirrors. Why do you cover mirrors? It seems kind of a strange custom. Mm. Well, we know from experimental research that if you look into a mirror, whatever emotion you are feeling becomes intensified. If you're happy, you feel happier. If you're sad, which you would be during a time of mourning, you become sadder and more depressed. Mm. And so by covering mirrors, it's a way to reduce that. People sit on low stools. Why do you sit on these really low, uncomfortable stools or on the floor? There's really interesting work now showing that mild onsets and offsets of pain or discomfort as you would get from sitting kind of in a low crunched ergonomic position and then getting up reduces rumination and reduces depression. And so there are all these elements that are built in that I'm sure no one understood the neuroscience behind them, but together create a package that is designed to relieve grief and help people move through mourning. It's kind of a brilliant package. I mean, I'm half Jewish. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I've, I think I've probably sat Shiva before. It's been a while though. So I've heard the expression a a million times, but I I had no idea that it had all of these components that were knit together and that each of these components were so ingenious in their own right. I want to pick up on one element that you said a few words about, but I think might be nice to get you to expand on. There's a term you use, I believe, motor synchrony. And this shows up in a lot of rituals that you write about and have Mm -hmm. looked at. Can you say more about motor synchrony? Sure. The way I describe it is objects moving together in time. You can think of flocks of birds or schools of fish. You know, when you see all of them moving in a coordinated manner, it looks like what our individual animals somehow becomes a larger entity. Mm. And it's kind of an ancient language that that our brain uses to interpret things. And so we thought, um, when we were running a study on this, trying to look at a way to help people find connection, in humans, it might help people feel connected. And so to make a long story short, we, we brought a bunch of people into our lab and we sat them across the table from each other, two pairs of, you know, a pair of people at a time. They couldn't talk to one another. They put on earphones and we played tones in those earphones. And their only job was to tap the sensor in front of them as they heard those tones. Now, we rigged it, right, so that for some pairs, the tones were synchronized, or they were hearing them in unison, so their hands were moving in unison in their field of vision. Others, they were random, and so they were completely out of sync. After that, we asked people, how, you know, how close or how similar did you feel to that other person? And if they had tapped in time, they reported feeling more similar. And it was weird because they couldn't explain it, right? They had the sense that I was more similar. And so they were trying to explain it. And they'd say things like, I think he was in my class last year, or I saw him <laughs> at a party last week, right? You have this feeling like, you know it, you feel, you feel something, but you can't explain it. But then we kind of rigged a situation where one of the pair got unfairly stuck doing this really long and boring and difficult task. And what we found is that the people who, if they had tapped in time, the partner was much more willing to come to that person's aid. I mean, I think, I think the, the rate of saying, you know, can I help them out with that? We, we basically tripled the percentage hmm. of people who were willing to do that. They said, I feel badly for them. I want to go help them out. They didn't know this person from Adam. But what it was, that simple act of moving in time was enough to make them feel connected in a way 
that they had compassion for each other and wanted to help one another. And then I thought, whoa, this is great. Let's go, you know, write up a paper about this, which we did because we've discovered a new way to help people feel connected. And then everywhere I look, every religion uses it. Again, it was one of these humbling moments. I never realized that the reason they were doing it is to make people feel closer together. And there's lots of data that suggests people who, who attend service and worship together feel closer together. But again, it's one of these things that was just running under the, running under the radar. And had we understood and looked to religion and rituals, we probably would have come up with this idea a lot sooner. How can we operationalize this insight in our daily life? Should we start meetings with some sort of synchronized movement or how can we do this? Yeah, it's funny, you know, I mean, you'll see this in in some places, you know, like sports teams will do it before they go out. Or if you've ever seen the Maori from New Zealand, they have this haka that they Yeah, we, we were starting to think about a project that we never quite got off the ground. You know, how could people use this in kind of anxiety provoking situations where you want to feel some comfort with somebody new and some trust and some sense of compassion with them. And so we were potentially going to do an experiment where we did this in doctor's offices where people were going in for a biopsy and meeting the radiologist who you have no history with. And, you know, you're oftentimes worried if you're going to get very negative news. So, you know, even there it can be the type of thing where a physician and patient takes two minutes together and just takes deep breaths together or kind of raise their hands up and down as they do this. And again, it sounds a little strange because we don't have the ritual for it, a context for it, but there's a lot of synchrony work out there, not not just the one experiment that I'm suggesting that shows that it makes people cooperate more, feel more comfortable, trust each other more. So let me just get, stay on Shiva for a second, yeah, let just, sure. or let me go back to Shiva, because there's, there's, I believe, another element of Shiva that, that may not have come up yet, which is wearing torn garments. Yeah, so it's often called the Kriya. So traditionally, people would tear a garment when somebody passed. Now, oftentimes what they'll do is, and, and forgive me, my friends who are, who are Jewish, I'm not Jewish, so this is kind of what I've learned. They will put a black ribbon with a pin on their, you know, shirt or blouse or jacket and tear that. And the beauty of that is it is a sign that you are mourning. One of the most difficult things is to kind of know where somebody is in their emotional state. And so in the Victorian period, they had this wonderful custom where when someone died, the mourners would wear black. And then as time went on, they would wear gray. And then they, in half mourning, which was several months later, they would wear kind of a violet. And then they would wear white. And it was a way to know for people who were just coming to meet them, I have not seen them in a while, where they were in the mourning process. And so, you know, the Kriya in some ways is a nice way to see that, but it also serves another purpose, which is a reminder. People are also supposed to not wear your best clothes, more traditional observers will not wear their best shoes or their best dresses and not worry about bathing or shaving and primping. The idea there is to lessen self-focus, to not Mm. be focused on you yourself and worrying about how you're going to look or what you're going to do. And again, this goes back to kind of the work I mentioned before on mirrors. To the extent that people are self-focused with or without mirrors, it tends to intensify the emotion they're feeling. And at a time of mourning, that's usually kind of grief and and anxiety. And, you know, the rule in Shiva is when you come in, you wait for the mourner to speak to you and you let them set the tone. If they want to talk about the person who've passed, 
that's wonderful. If they are not ready to do that, that's okay. You take your lead from them. And again, it, it, it kind of, because that's the custom built into the ritual, it helps people deal with that thing of, oh my gosh, what, what do I say? Should I try and lighten the mood? Should I not try and lighten the mood? It's just a way of, of easing the whole process. Much more of my conversation with David Desteno after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's uh, move on to another aspect of your religio prospecting, the practice of saying grace before meals, which I think is a Christian practice. I know it to be a Christian practice. I'm sure there are other religions that give thanks. In Judaism, the prayer said every morning is the first thing that you say is, is you thank God for, for letting you have a breath that morning and for having another day. But the idea behind these are they're prayers of gratitude, and grace is just one example of a prayer of gratitude. There are many different types of prayers of gratitude. What do they do for you? So, the, you know, the reason we have emotions is to influence what we're going to do, right? It wouldn't make sense for the mind to have an emotion if it didn't serve a purpose. And so 
you know, there's lots of evidence that when we feel frightened, it makes us more vigilant for threats and makes us more careful. But there are these kind of morally toned emotions, things like gratitude. And what we found in our lab is if we make people feel gratitude, they become more honest. So to make an example, we'll have people count their blessings. And for some people, that's a completely secular thing that they do. Just talk about what they're grateful for in their life at this point. For some people, they write about religious things. You know, I'm thanking God for my health, my family, whatever it might be. And then one thing we do is we give them the opportunity to cheat on something. We give them the opportunity to flip a coin and tell us if it came up heads or tails. And if it came up heads, you get a lot more money than if it came up tails. But of course, we can tell what they do with the, with the coin come up because it's, it's a computer coin that we rig. So we know how it comes up. And what you find is people who are feeling grateful become much more honest. In one study, we had about 25% of people who weren't feeling grateful lie to us. And so we mm-hmm. gave them more money. In the gratitude condition, we had about two or 3% of people do that. So it's a dramatic reduction. In other studies, we give them money and they can choose to split it fairly with other people or to keep more for themselves. People who just count their blessings and are feeling gratitude are more equitable. They're more likely to go out of their way to help someone, even a stranger who they've never met. So we'll make them feel gratitude in the lab. We'll send them down the hall on their way out of the building. They think the experiment is over and then we'll have someone who they never met come up to them, an actor, and ask them for help. And we'll see whether they're willing to help this person. And again, it's the more gratitude they feel. It's really like a dose response thing. The more you feel it, the more effort you'll exert to help somebody, the more money you'll give to help somebody, the more, the more ethical you'll be on your own. And so again, you know, all religions, right, want people to be ethical and all kind of give you commandments to be ethical. But we all know we don't always live up to whether it's a religious ideal or even our own ideal that we set for ourselves. I'm sure if we all look back at our lives, there are things we did that we're not proud of ethically. But the fact of cultivating gratitude every day, whether it's, you know, the Jewish prayer upon awakening, grace before meals, or Thanksgiving or gratitude prayers in other religions, every day, that's a boost to make you more ethical, more generous, more kind. And without you having to think about God even, really. I mean, yes, you're saying the prayer, but, you know, we can show in our experiments It's that feeling, whether you're thinking about God or not, that changes your behavior. And so what does that mean if you're someone who's not religious? It means take a time, instead of thanking God for a prayer of thanksgiving before a meal or when you wake up in the morning, be thankful for something that you have in your life, whether it be your parents, a friend, someone who did something for you the day before, uh, and you'll get those same benefits. What about gratitude journals? Yeah, gratitude journals are a wonderful way of of doing it. Instead of saying prayers for every day of Thanksgiving to induce gratitude, you know, a gratitude journal is its own ritual, right? It's a time that you set aside to repeat every day or every couple of days on your own schedule to reflect and call that emotion to mind. And simply calling that emotion to mind is a nudge to make you more ethical and more generous and more helpful to the people around you. Let's move on to another religious ceremony. This one is the Apache Sunrise Ceremony. What did you learn about this? Yeah, so that falls into one of the categories uh, of what we call rites of passage. It's when adolescents are trying to become adults. And, you know, that's always a really tricky time because not only do you kind of have to convince yourself that that you are now an adult and, and able to handle those responsibilities, but you have to 
convince the community that, that you're worthy of that too. And so there are kind of two ways that these ceremonies often work. And, and I, I kind of like to say by pain or by brain. And what I mean by pain is in a lot of cultures, people have to endure grueling ceremonies. And the Apache sunrise ceremony is one of those. It's for young women who are on their way to adulthood. And it's a ceremony where they have to dance in front of people, usually in an open field, for hours on end without breaks in ways that are in- incredibly grueling. There are similar things in Central America. For boys, there's something called the bullet ant ceremony. And they're called bullet ants because their sting feels like you got shot by a bullet. The pain's been tested and it's kind of equivalent. And they have to put on these gloves that are made out of plant fronds and leaves, but they have the ants weaved into them, stingers inside. And so you have to wear these. And not only does it hurt like heck, but the venom of the ants makes you feel kind of nauseous and like you're going to faint and they have to endure these silently. And all of these are experiences where you have to show some degree of self-control. The idea is not to cry out uh, in the Apache sunrise ceremony. It's, it's, it's to keep going and to not give up. And it's a way to prove to yourself and to other people that you have the self-control to be an adult. But the important part about that is what comes next. The community has to kind of embrace you and buy into it. So, you know, I'll talk in a minute about kind of the more Western versions of this with things like confirmation or or, or bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. So, you know, when I was confirmed as a Catholic, nothing much changed for me the day after. It wasn't like, you know, suddenly everybody's saying, oh, Dave, you're an adult now. You can can do whatever. And I I think the same thing happens for, for bar mitzvahs. Yes, you can now take part in certain ritual aspects of Judaism as an adult, but it's not like you're paying your own bills, you're, you're out on your own, you're, you're doing things. So in these more traditional cultures, as you do these things, you are given more and more responsibility. So the community suddenly has to see you in this role. And there's wonderful work by uh, an anthropologist named Demetrius Zygalatis, who shows that these ceremonies that induce a lot of kind of pain they are also very, as you can imagine, arousing for the audience to watch, right? If you're watching a young woman dancing upon hours and wondering if she's going to keep making it, you can see the, the sweat on her brow as she's continuing to do it. Or you're watching these boys being stung by ants that you know extremely hurt really well or firewalking. He's like a lot of studied firewalking. What you see is it's really interesting. He put sensors on people who were firewalking and, and people who were watching. And what you find is that their heart rates synchronize, right? Because they're kind of almost in this together. And that's an act not of synchrony of movement, but of physiological synchrony. And it binds them together. After these ceremonies, a lot of people will say, now we feel like, we feel like brothers or we feel like the community. Now, if you look at bar mitzvahs and and bat mitzvahs and confirmations, the problem is those weren't really designed as coming-of-age ceremonies. Traditionally, a bar mitzvah on, on a boy's 13th birthday, his father simply said, you know, blessed be he who has released me from being liable for this boy. And that was it. It was basically a father's way of washing his hands for responsibility for his son. 
In Catholicism, confirmation initially was given at the same time as baptism when people were converting when they were all adults. It wasn't really something that had to do with coming of age. Now, both of these you know, happen around the age of 13. And so it's, it's kind of at the time where we are starting to kind of become an adult, but they don't work that way because the day after, nothing is really different. And so what I talk about in the book is, you know, in complex societies like ours, there's probably not one age that makes the most sense for people to adult, to use that word, you know, because at one age you can drink, at one age you can vote, at another age, you know, you can do something else or open a bank account or use a credit card. There is no one age that seems perfectly magical to kind of be now you are an adult. And so what might make more sense is to do a number of kind of iterative ceremonies, one for each accomplishment. And in fact, some of these traditional cultures do that, like that ant ceremony I told you about. They do that multiple times. It's not one and done. And so for us, it might be worthwhile to have a ceremony when somebody reaches the age at which they can go off to college, another at which they can vote, another at which they're getting their first job, after which people can really begin to treat them differently. Because when you're 13, Yes, you can be confirmed. Yes, you can have a bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, but nothing much changes in your life right after. And so if we're looking for ways to encourage teens to take on more adult responsibilities, the question of when's the right time for each responsibility and what's the best way to market. And the best way to market is to have them show some self-control, some ability of demonstration of competence. You know, a great way of thinking about this is the route to becoming an Eagle Scout. You, mm. you pass lots of different trials. And at the end, you are recognized as someone who can be a valued leader, a responsible person, a member of the community. And so I don't have the answer to the magic age at which people should become adults, but I think we should find rituals for that in our Western society a bit more than we have. And it might help this problem of kind of helicopter parenting and 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 when do kids get get the right age to be on their own. No, that's utterly fascinating, especially as I consider the life of my six-year-old. <laughs> I, I could talk about my son all day and I don't want to inflict that upon you, but l let's just keep going with these ceremonies because there's also some Japanese Shinto rituals that you've looked at. Yeah, so these I talk about around childbirth. And if you look at the ethnographic literature, what you'll see is that on average, the closeness of Japanese mothers to their child tends to be more than many other cultures in terms of time they actually spend together in terms of skin-to-skin -skin contact and in lots of other ways. It, it's so much so that they actually have this kind of unique emotion, which is called amai. And amai is kind of an emotion where you cherish someone. We have the idea in Western culture, we don't have the word. So imagine your toddler coming over to you while you're working and kind of tugging on your, on your pants, looking up to you and saying, you know, would you read me this story? And it's that feeling of, oh, of course, and you put down your work and you put them in your lap and it's that kind of cherishing feeling. The reason we don't have a word for it is because it's not as frequent here. And so there's wonderful work hmm. by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who I know you've had mm -hmm. on your podcast. And she argues that the emotion terms that different cultures have are the ones that are most useful and happen most in those cultures. Mm. So the question is, why might it be that the Japanese have what seems almost an increased reverence for their children? Not that other people don't, I'm not saying that at all, but just if you look at it, they have this, this unique emotion. Shinto, which is the traditional religion of Japan, in the first year has a ton of ceremonies that focus on 
caretaking. It begins when the mother is pregnant, where um, I won't try and pronounce the, the rituals because I'm sure I won't do them justice, but family will come and they will tie a sash around her pregnant belly, which is a sign of their care for her, but also a sign of, of protection and support for that child. When the child is born, there's uh, a ceremony. When they announce the name, there is a ceremony. There's a, a blessing that then happens a couple months later where they go to the Shinto temples. On the first birthday, there's a ceremony. On the earlier years of life, there are multiple ceremonies. And each of these ceremonies requires the parents to usually spend a lot of money to get new clothes or special items, to put on special meals for family and friends. And what it does is it reinforces this idea that this child is valuable. So Alison Gopnik, who's a psychologist at, at University of California, Berkeley, has this, this quote that I love from one of her books where she says, sometimes we care for people because we love them, but sometimes we love them because we care for them. Mm-hmm. And what she means by that is the act of caring. And by simply having multiple times where you are publicly vetting this child, where you are putting them before everyone as the apple of your eye, where you are spending time, money, and resources to do this, it's a reminder to you and to your brain that this is something that you value. And what we know everything from, I hate to say it in in terms of economics, but what we know from economics research is the more we spend on something, the more attention we give to something, the more we, we value it. Even if it's irrational. With children, it's certainly not irrational. But you know, just if you have people and you put them in experiments where they're talking about how wonderful something is and saying this is great, they start to increase the value they attach to it. And what these rituals do is they are reminders. And because they're ritualized, they're embedded in your memory more of how much we care and value our children. And in those moments, and we've all had them as parents, when you're feeling overwhelmed and you're just (laughs) ready to pull your hair out and not knowing what's going on, those reminders, that kind of non-conscious tie, the valuation that it gives to your child is a way to strengthen those relationships. And so what do you do if you're not Shinto? Well, it's funny, what you do are exactly the things that pediatricians are now encouraging parents to do with their children. Because, you know, unfortunately, there are certain percentages of new parents who have trouble bonding with their children as much as they want. Sometimes it's due to anxiety, sometimes it's due to postpartum depression or other things. And so if you're having a problem feeling like you're bonding to your child, they'll say, well, set a time every day to give the baby a massage or set a time every day to sit down and read to your child or snuggle together. And the important thing is that you do it. What you're really doing there is creating a ritual, right? It's a completely secular ritual, but it's a time where you show time and effort to value this lovely little being who can be kind of demanding. I mean, if you think about it, it's hard. When kids are little, it's really kind of a one-way relationship. Yes, we have hormonal responses that make us love them, but we are giving them everything that they need. And so by having these rituals, it's just a way to kind of reinforce to our minds how important they are and how much we love them. And and the rituals that pediatricians are giving kind of mirror what Shinto's been doing for thousands of years. There's so much here where to start. I love this Alison Gopnik quote, and this is an overused phrase I'm about to use. I've never met her. I would love to have her on the show, Alison, if you're listening, you're invited. 
this is an overused phrase, but that notion, which I've heard her articulate before, changed my life. Mm. The idea that putting in the work creates the affection, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. In my experience, this is scalable well beyond your child. I've found that being more systematic about mentoring relationships has created a difference in my relationship with my colleagues, with my aging parents, the being thrust into more of a caretaker role has opened up a whole new realm of affection that I already had for them. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, whether you agree with what I'm saying, and if so, whether there's a way to systematize that for regular people. I think it's absolutely right. And this is why often I talk about why we can take elements of rituals, we see how they work, and apply them in different ways. And, and I don't think, as long as we're not using the same the same prayers or traditional elements, it's not showing a disrespect. It's kind of honoring that wisdom and applying it differently. But you're absolutely right. I have the same thing with, with my mom, who's just turning 100. And wow. she is, I said, I hope I have your genes, mom. I mean, I have some of them, but I hope I have the super aging ones. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely, it's absolutely right. And, you know, the economist will talk about it and, and, and this term sounds cold, but I'll use it. It's called the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Right. Yes. Which is if you've put time and energy into something, we're like, oh, I've already put three weeks into this course. I don't really like it, but I, you know, I guess I have to keep going. And rationally, that makes no sense. Cut your losses and go. Children or people we care about are not sunk costs in that sense, but they're kind of similar because with a child, you are putting in tons of effort now and you're going to enjoy that relationship as that child grows and, and I mean, you enjoy them when they're babies too, but I mean, in terms of more give and take. And so reminding yourself, engaging in the care and what the ritual does is it makes it so that you can't forget it because it's this big event that happens every couple months, right? But to your point, in any type of relationship, it will create that affection. Much more of my conversation with David Desteno after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats, but here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique 
custom gifts, and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Just going back to this concept, I believe you used the term amai, the Japanese Mm -hmm. word for the cherishing of a child. It's great that they came up with a word. I don't know if this is useful to anybody, but it just I'll just share it in case it is. When I do metta, M-E-T-T-A, or loving kindness practice, and you're repeating these phrases to yourself, like if you're sending metta to other people, it's may you be happy, may you be safe, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the practice, you also turn it on yourself. Mm-hmm. When I send may I be happy, the image or the felt sense that I generate is when I am hugging my son. Oh, so that is kind of like tripling down on yeah. my, because that is when I am most happy. Oh, that's beautiful. So if that's useful to anybody, I share it. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, I was talking recently with Sharon Salzberg, who I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. and we were talking about our work on meditation and, and, and compassion. And, and it's funny, you know, the one thing she told me is, oftentimes when a lot of people start meditating, it's, it's so they can feel better themselves, they have, some stress, some pain, some difficulty, some anxiety that they're trying to work through. Same was true for her. But as you learn to make space for that, to sit with it, to have that that equanimity, that space that you open up can't help but then make you feel room and desire to want to extend that that metta and that care for others. And I think that's the beauty in the in the practice. And I think traditionally, if you're studying with a Buddhist teacher, you'll get a lot of the other theology and other parts of it that talk about the importance of kindness and, and compassion. I think they're called karuna for others. But the idea is the meditation is one tool to help prepare your mind to be more tuned and, and ready for that. And again, that's where I think the magic is in a lot of these practices. Is there more to say about what you've observed as the benefits of mindfulness and meditation? So the one other thing I'll say, and this takes longer, of course, to to get to than some of the initial anxiety benefits and compassion benefits that come. And I certainly have not experienced this myself, but uh, I know for many people, it can bring you to a transcendental state of sorts, that state where you feel a deep connection to kind of everything, this oneness with the universe. And a lot of people are kind of seeking transcendent experiences. And you know, one thing I talk about in the book are there are different ways to get there. Roughly speaking, people break them down into what are called the right-handed and the left-handed techniques, right? Right-handed techniques are techniques like meditation that fit within traditional religions or practices. And, and I, I never understood this. So Dan, you said you were, you were half Jewish. What's the other half? Uh, brittle wasp. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So, so for me, um, because I was raised Catholic, I had no idea that there's a whole slew of Catholic meditation practices. But if you look at these practices and what you'll see is over time, as you become more proficient in meditation, when you start getting to those transcendental experiences, those states of oneness, that often sense of your, your own identity melting away, the areas of the brain that that affects are the exact same areas that things like psilocybin and ayahuasca affect. Now, those are kind of what people call the left-handed techniques, not in a disparaging way, but in a sense that 
they are fast. They are rapid. You can get those without spending the years of practice that you would need with meditation. But because they're fast, they can also be kind of dangerous or risky, right? That is, you know, about 20% of people who have some of these trips, it's not pleasant. 8%, I've seen Michael Pollan say, seek um, psychiatric help after because that experience of your ego melting away, shattering something psychologists call ego death, can be blissful or it can be terrifying. And what's important when we think about the rituals is they provide the scaffolding to help ensure that it's the blissful one and not the terrifying one. So if you're eating magic mushrooms or drinking ayahuasca with your local Brooklyn hipster place, they're probably not having all the rituals, the chanting. And what we know about those is when you hear chanting, when you engage in chanting yourself, it slows your breathing. What does that slowed breathing do? It slows your heart rate. What does that do? It puts your brain in a state of calmness where it doesn't expect danger around the corner. And so when you enter these transcendental states, it's again nudging you toward a blissful safe one as opposed to a bad trip. So I guess what I say about meditation is it's a route toward these transcendental experiences that psychedelics can give you too. It's just a longer route. But on the psychedelic side, the thing to think about is make sure you are doing it with someone who has some training, whether they're a shaman or not. They have the kind of ancient accrued wisdom of what are the ritual elements that go around it? The chant's not just window dressing, right? The chanting and the prayers are there to kind of scaffold your experience so that it is an enjoyable one and not a frightening one. Before I let you go, I want to loop back to something you brought up very early on in the conversation and mentioned that you probably wanted to come back to, which is the benefits of belief. Yeah. Just to remind everybody you've been talking all along about how we can employ these practices sans belief. We can get the benefits of religion without being religious. But there are benefits to straight-up yeah. belief, and I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, there's lots of work suggesting that one thing it does is reduce decision fatigue. So, you know, we all think that isn't life better the more choices we have because we can optimize things perfectly. But there's, you know, a wonderful term called the tyranny of choice. Sometimes when you have too many choices to make, it can be anxiety provoking because you're like, oh my gosh, what do you know? I have to do this, I have to do that. And you know, that's bad enough if we're trying to figure out what the best tie is. It can become paralyzing if you're trying to figure out, oh my gosh, what's the best preschool for my child to go to? Or I have 16 different therapies I can pick for this malady I'm facing. What's the right one? And what happens if I pick something wrong? And so there's evidence that people who have a belief in a higher power have less anxiety in the face of those choices. Now, I don't mean to say that that means they're just gonna say, I'm just gonna give it up to God and not worry and not to be intelligent about the decisions you're making. You still wanna make smart, intelligent decisions, but there's evidence to suggest that people who have a greater belief in a higher power, doesn't matter exactly how you conceptualize that power, but a higher power tend to have less anxiety around decisions related to health, career, lots of other areas in life. And overall, that adds up to a good deal of, of reduced anxiety in your daily life. Now, do you have to be religious? Maybe not. I mean, in some sense, right? And Dan, you probably know this better than I do. A lot of the Buddhists will say, why worry about something that you have no idea if it's going to ever happen? 
You know, if there's a way to fix something, fix it. If there's not, well, then don't spend your time obsessing about it. And so even a belief that things will just work out or even a belief that I shouldn't worry and I have to accept what comes in some ways functions much as a belief in a higher power would. It kind of takes the onus off of ourselves that we put on us that we ourselves have to optimize every decision. Otherwise, we're going to regret it or make a terrible, a terrible decision. I would imagine one of the benefits of belief is that you might feel like you're in a benevolent universe and you don't have to worry about what's going to happen when you die. Yeah, well, that's another issue, right, is, is if we're talking about belief in the afterlife. Individuals who have belief in life after death, especially as they kind of get older and, 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 and approach death, have much less anxiety. But it's funny, hardcore atheists have more anxiety than do people who are hardcore believers, but they have less anxiety than people who don't know what they believe. And so my sense is, you know, we don't know, no one knows what happens after we're gone. Given that there is no proof that a belief in the afterlife causes anyone any harm, why be adamant against it? You know, we don't know. And so, yes, it can reduce your anxiety, which would only be a problem to me if there was some other downside of believing in an afterlife. But as far as I can tell, there's not. And just to make the point, though, as as far as I can tell, the real point of your book isn't really to debate the pluses and That's right. minuses of religion. It's to say that you can extract the benefits, extract not in the pejorative, enjoy the benefits of religious practices, whether you are a believer or not. That is right. It's, it's, it's in one sense a pushback against kind of the new atheist movement, which says a lot of religion is kind of folly or superstition. And, you know, I love the scientific method. I am a scientist. I believe it's the best tool we have to study how the world works. But what I'm saying is we should be humble enough to realize that when it comes to helping people, thousands of years of thought might have some good ideas there. We're actually slowing scientific progress if we're not willing to look at it. Doesn't mean you have to buy the theology, but let's look at the practices in a respectful way and let's work together. Let's talk across the lines that normally divide us, science versus religion, one faith versus another. If we all care about making life better for people, Let's study these practices. Again, we've done it with meditation. There has to be more out there. It's probably a, a great place to leave it. Dave, before we go, can you plug your new book, any other books that you want us to know about, any other resources you might have out there? Can you just plug away, please? Yeah, sure. My book is called How God Works, The Science Behind the Benefits of Religion, out from Simon & Schuster. And I'm also happy to say that, Dan, you've inspired me. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a podcast of the same name, we're going to explore these issues and bring some scientists and religious thinkers together. Awesome. Congratulations on the book and the podcast. And thank you for coming on this show. You did a great job. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks again to David. Love talking to him. And don't forget, David's got a new podcast. It's now out in the world. Go check it out. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's called How God Works, and we'll put a link in the show notes. The show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering from Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a conversation with Lisa Feldman Barrett. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? fold and now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today join me dj and my trusty turntable baby scratch as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast once upon a beat wondry and tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet it's once upon a beat follow once upon a beat on the wondry app or wherever you get your podcast you can listen to once upon a beat early and ad free right now by joining wondry plus in the wondry app or wondry kids plus in apple Podcasts. once upon a beat